Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tonight, I will be reading more tales from the book King Arthur and his knights. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. How Arthur Fought with a Giant Once upon a time, King Arthur and some of his knights were sailing in a ship. The king, being tired, went to sleep in his cabin and began to dream. It seemed to him that he was sailing with his people when a great dragon flew out of the west. This dragon had a blue head and a gold back. Underneath he shone like a rainbow. Flames of fire rushed out of his mouth and covered land and sea. As he flew, there came out of the east a great bear, very rough and as black as coal, and with wings that flapped like windmills. The bear and the dragon roared loudly, and they began to fight and struggle till the sea was all red with blood. At last, the dragon conquered. When the king awoke from his dream, he sent for Merlin and told him of it, and asked for an explanation. My lord, Merlin replied, the dragon betokens yourself, and the colors on its body are signs of your glory. The bear betokens some tyrant who torments the people and whom you will slay. Soon after this, the ship in which the company was came in sight of land. When they had anchored, the knights noticed on the beach a crowd of people who were weeping. Descending from the ship, Arthur asked one of the men what troubled them and what was the name of their country. Good sir, returned the man, this is the country of Brittany, and we weep because our county is desolated by a giant. He makes us bring him food. First, he ate up all the oxen we had, and then our horses. Next, he demanded our children, and now there are no little ones in the land. Today, he took our good Duchess of Brittany and carried her off to his mountain. 
Alas, said the king, it grieves me to hear this, not only because a cruel deed has been done, but because the Duchess of Brittany is my cousin's wife. I must save this lady. I will fight with the giant. Good sir, cried the people in amazement, it is not possible. A whole company of us dare not attack him, and we account ourselves brave men. That may well be, replied Arthur, and yet with my good sword and scabbard, I have no fear. Then the men said, If you will go, my lord, yonder is the great mountain where the giant lives. At the top, two huge fires burn continually in front of a cave, and in that cave are greater treasures that you can dream of. They're all yours, if you will but slay this monster. Arthur replied nothing to them, but called Sir Kay and Sir Bedivere, and rode with them to the foot of the mountain. From that point he ascended alone. When he was nearly to the top he came upon a woman, clad all in black, who sat weeping by the side of a newly made grave. Good woman, why do you weep? asked Arthur. Hush, hush, she cried, or the giant will hear you and come and kill you. He can hear me, but the sound of weeping delights him, and therefore I need not restrain my grief. Why do you grieve? the king asked. Alas, because my good mistress, the Duchess of Brittany, is dead. The giant has killed her. At that, Arthur gripped tightly the handle of his sword and said, I will kill this wretch before I am an hour older. Ah, my lord, said the woman, the greatest kings in the country are afraid of him. He has a coat embroidered with the beards of fifteen of them. He demanded these beards as a sign that they acknowledged him as lord. There is at least one king who does not acknowledge him as lord, shouted Arthur as he strode hastily forward. When he reached the top, he saw the giant asleep in front of two great fires before the cave. He was taller than the tallest pine that ever grew. His arms were as big as the trunk of an oak tree. His mouth was as large as a cave, and from it and his nostrils came forth fire and flame, like that from the mountain of Vesuvius. Although his huge eyes were closed, flashes of lightning seemed to shoot from beneath the lids. At his side was an iron club as large as a steeple. About him stood trembling old women fanning him as he slept. King Arthur approached the monster and said to him, Wretch, awake and fight, for your hour has come. The giant, starting up, looked down scornfully upon the king and laughing, threw his great club at Arthur. But the king leapt aside and the club fell harmlessly on the ground, making a hollow where it struck. Then Arthur rushed toward the giant, waving his good sword Excalibur. The giant caught him in his arms in order to squeeze him to death. The king's armor pressed closer and closer about him, and he began to lose his strength. But he kept his hand upon the scabbard, and so did not die. In a few minutes the monster, making sure that Arthur was dead, dropped him to the ground. After the king had recovered himself, he sprang to his feet, and taking his sword, threw it at the giant. The good steel pierced his neck, and he sank to the ground, shouting so loudly that Sir Kay and Sir Bedivere at the foot of the mountain heard and trembled for their master's safety. Then the giant again seized Arthur in his arms, and the two began to roll down the mountainside. Whenever Arthur was able to, he struck at the giant with his dagger, wounding him sorely. At last, still struggling and rolling, they came to the spot where Sir Kay and Sir Bedivere were. These two loosed the giant's arms from the king, who then gave one last blow to the monster, killing him. Then he sent Sir Kay and Sir Bedivere for his sword Excalibur.
When the people on the seashore heard what Arthur had done, they fell on their knees and thanked him, offering him all the giant's treasure. He said, however, that he would leave it with them to divide among the poor people of the country. For himself, all he wanted was the giant's iron club. The people sent fifty men to the top of the mountain to get it for him. As they had no horses, it was a long time before they could drag the club to the seashore. There they put it on a barge. It was so heavy that it pressed the barge down till the water came almost to the edge of the vessel. Then King Arthur bade the people goodbye and took ship with his knights. The grateful men of Brittany stood on the shore and shouted and waved until the ship could no longer be seen. How Arthur Fought with Rome In the time of the great Roman Julius Caesar, about 500 years before King Arthur was born, the people of Rome conquered Britain. They made many improvements in the land, building roads and walls, the remains of which may be seen to this day. But they also forced the Britons to pay them much money. All the kings did this up to the time of Arthur. He, however, considered that England was his own. He had conquered the lesser kings and made one realm of all the land, over which he ruled with wise government. So he refused to send any money to Rome. Once King Arthur's knights were all together in the great hall. It was a time of peace, and they spent the days in riding and hunting. On this day, while the king was sitting on his throne, twelve old men entered, each bearing a branch of olive as a sign that they came in peace. They were the messengers of the emperor of Rome, and after bowing to the king they said, Sir, our mighty emperor sends you greeting, and commands you to acknowledge him as lord, and to send him the money due him from your realm. Your father and your predecessors did this, and so must you. If you refuse, the emperor will make such war against you that it will be an example to all the world. At this, the young knights laid their hands to their swords, but the older knights, who had self-control enough to hide their feelings, waited to see what the king would do. Arthur bowed courteously to the messengers and told them that he would soon give them an answer. He commanded a knight to take them to a lodging and to see that they had all they needed, and he ordered that no harm should be done to them. Then he called a council of his great lords and asked their advice. Sir Lancelot, Arthur's favourite lord, spoke first, saying, My lord, we've rested for many weeks and can make sharp war now. In days gone by we should not have dared attack the Romans, and indeed, our attempt will make the world wonder, but of a truth we ought to fight. Then spoke King Angus of Scotland. My Lord Arthur, you are the greatest lord on earth. You have made all of us lesser kings your subjects and bound the kingdom together and stopped our civil wars. We love you and will help you. We pray you to make war on these Romans. When they ruled our elders, they demanded much gold and made our people very poor. If you will fight, I will furnish you with twenty thousand men and will bear all the cost of them myself. Then all the other lords promised to furnish men and arms. When Arthur heard this, he was glad of their courage and goodwill. He called in the messengers and said to them, Return to your emperor. Tell him that I refuse his command, for I owe him nothing. I have won this kingdom by my own strength. Tell him that I shall come with all my army to Rome and make him acknowledge me as lord. Then Arthur told his treasurer to give the messengers gifts and to take them safely out of the country. Sir Lancelot 
conducted them to the sea where they took ship and sailed to France. On they journeyed over the Alps and into Italy. When they told the Emperor of Rome their message, he said, I had thought Arthur would yield. But the messenger said, Sir, his face would have told you, if you had seen it, that he would never yield. In truth, there is need of fear, for he is a great king and surrounded by great knights. This is foolish talk, the emperor said. Remember that we are Romans. We have ruled the world for centuries, and a little king of little England shall not make us fear. You say that he is coming to fight with us. We will take a few troops and go forth to France to meet him. The messengers begged the emperor to take many troops. My lord emperor, they said, these men of Arthur are very numerous and very brave. So at last the emperor brought all his men to France, and there, when he found people who were loyal to Arthur, he killed and laid waste. Meanwhile, Arthur had gathered together all his troops. He bade farewell to Queen Guinevere, who was so grieved that she fell in a swoon. Then he rode off at the head of his men till they came to the sea, and there they embarked in ten thousand boats and sailed to France. They marched till they came near to the troops of the Emperor of Rome, where they rested for the night. In the morning, they rose at dawn and looked at the Roman legions. These were encamped in a green field which glittered with the gold on their tents and armor. The emperor's tent was of purple silk and bore on the top a golden eagle, the emblem of Rome. Two of Arthur's knights, Sir Lancelot and Sir Gwain, rode out to the emperor and told him that their king had come. That I see, said the emperor, laughing, and he shall soon return. The two knights made no answer, but rode back to Arthur. Soon all the soldiers on each side made ready for fight. The preparation was careful, for they knew that the contest was to be a great one. The emperor of Rome addressed his soldiers. Romans, remember that Rome is the chief city of the world. I do not say fight as men, I say to you, fight as Romans. Then you will surely conquer these Britons. King Arthur galloped up and down before the front rank of his men, looking at them carefully. He was on a beautiful white horse whose mane rose and fell in the wind like a wave of the sea. His soldiers cheered lustily for their beloved commander. Then King Arthur raised his hand for silence and spoke in a loud, clear voice. My knights and men whom I love, remember that you are fighting today for your rights and for the independence of Britain. Strike well. And do not forget that great courage is as powerful as great numbers. With that, he gave the signal for attack. The Romans stood in full battle array with their emperor in front. Beside him were sixteen kings with gold helmets and silver armor. The English approached, shouting a battle cry. Then the Romans, at the call of the trumpet, rushed forward, and in a moment the two great armies clashed together. Clouds of dust arose through which could be seen at intervals the heads of horses and helmets of men. The few poor shepherds and women who stood on the outside did not know that the greatest battle of the time was going on under that cloud of dust. Inside the cloud, there was great confusion. Britons and Romans were fighting side by side, so closely packed that it sometimes was hard to strike. All fought bravely, but no one did so well as Arthur and Sir Lancelot. The battle did not cease until it was dark. Each side had lost many men. King Arthur wept as he rode over the field and counted his dead knights, and even his beautiful horse drooped its head, as if it also understood. 
But the next day, the two armies began to fight again. And when the emperor finally saw that his men were losing and that most of the kings who were helping him were dead, he said, This Arthur is a demon and not a man. I will fight with him myself and end this battle. And before anyone could stop him, he spurred up to King Arthur and said, You on the white horse who refuse to pay me tribute, come out that I may kill you. Then Arthur rode quickly towards the emperor. The two men began to fight and Arthur soon saw that he was contending with a powerful man. He gave the emperor many a stroke with Excalibur, but he himself received deep wounds. At last, the emperor pierced Arthur's helmet and wounded him deeply in the cheek. Arthur raised his good Excalibur with a last effort and struck his enemy with it so fiercely on the head that the blow cleft to the helmet and pierced to the emperor's chin. He fell from his horse without a moan. When the Romans nearby saw that their ruler was dead, they gave a great cry of grief and rushed upon Arthur, but his good knights protected him. At last, seeing themselves conquered, the Romans surrendered. Arthur found among his prisoners three senators, and among the dead, sixty senators, the sixteen kings, and the emperor. He was sorrowful, for he knew that they were great men, so he had them embalmed and laid in chests of lead. Around each chest flags were wound, and the shields of the dead warriors placed on top. Then he said to the three surviving senators, Take these noble dead bodies back to Rome. When the Romans see them, they will never again dare ask tax or tribute of me. I will not go to Rome and take the city from you. But if ever you send to me for gold, I shall invade your land and never rest till all Italy is mine. The senators bowed their heads. Then they laid the body of the emperor on a car, all alone, with the gold eagle above him. They laid the bodies of the kings and the senators two by two on chariots, and so went slowly towards Rome. And never again did the kings of Britain have to pay a tax to the Romans. The Knight with a Badly Made Coat One day, when Arthur and his knights were in the hall of the round table, a young man entered. He was so large that his shoulders were as wide as the doorway, and he could hardly squeeze through. The knights looked at him in amazement, for he was almost a giant. When he came closer to them, they saw that he had on a coat which was far too large for him. It hung in wrinkles and folds all over his back, and the sleeves were so long that he had to turn them up almost to the elbow. The coat was of rich material, gold cloth, but it was old and blood-stained. The young man strode up to the king and said, My lord, my name is Brun. I can tell you no more than that. I beg you to make me a knight. At this, Sir Kay laughed and said, He must be called the knight with a badly made coat. Call me what you will, said the young man. Yes, I take that name, for I will not tell you my real one. Then Arthur spoke to him gently. Young man, you ask a great thing. All those in my court who are made knights must serve for a long time as squires. If they prove themselves loyal and brave, I make them knights. But I must always know whence they came and who their fathers are. My lord, said the young man, I do indeed ask a great thing. I would gladly tell you more of myself, but I am under a vow to reveal no more than you already know. Yet I will tell you this further. I am the son of a noble who was as big as a giant. My good father was very peaceable and did not care to fight, so he never came to your court and you did not hear of him. 
He lived at home with my mother and me, and the simple people who ploughed the land about our castle. Everyone ought to have loved him, but he had one enemy. One day six years ago, when I was only a boy, my father and I were in the forest. My father was sleeping at the foot of a tree, and I was bathing in a brook nearby. This enemy, who wanted my father's lands, came up and drove his sword into my father's heart. Then he rode away. I ran up to my dead father and took off the coat which he wore and put it on. I swore never to take it off and never to tell my father's name or where I came from till I had avenged his death. Then I rode home to our castle, but our enemy had taken possession of it and had made my mother prisoner. As I was not yet grown up, I vowed that I would stay with the good shepherds nearby till I was strong enough to pull up a young tree by the roots. Then I would go to King Arthur's court and ask to be made a knight. So every month I've tried to uproot a young tree. This morning I succeeded, and here, my lords, I am. The knights were much moved and prayed the king to make him a knight. They said that they would teach him to use arms. The king said that he would wait to see what sort of man Brune was. A few days after this, all the knights rode off to a tournament, and Brune was left at home with a few soldiers. He was in the castle yard, practicing some of the lessons in warfare which the knights had been teaching him. While he was out of work, Queen Guinevere, with twelve soldiers who were her bodyguards, passed by. As she was speaking kindly to Brune, they heard a terrible noise, and looking in the direction from which it came, saw a dreadful sight. A fierce lion, which had been confined in a tower of stone, had broken out of its prison and was rushing towards them. The twelve soldiers fled, leaving the queen and Brune alone. Ah, said Brune, not all the cowards in the world are dead. He stood still while the lion bounded towards him. He had dropped his sword, and as the beast leaped upon him, he seized its head in his hands. Then he slowly, slowly bent its head back. It was a strong lion, and with the effort, the muscles on Brune's neck stood out like great ropes. Presently, the queen and Brune heard a loud crack, and they knew that the lion's neck was broken. Brune loosed his hold, and the large, tawny body dropped to the ground, quivered a moment, and was still. While this was going on, the king and his knights returned. They saw at a glance what Brune had done, and cheered him loudly. The king rode up to him. Kneel down, he said. Brune knelt down by the body of the lion, and the king touched him lightly with his sword, saying, Sir Brune, I make you a knight of my round table. Be always loyal, brave, and merciful. Then all the knights were glad, but Sir Brune was gladdest of all. Sir Lancelot and Sir Brune After Sir Brune, the knight with the badly made coat, had been at Arthur's court for some months, he became eager to seek for the enemy of his father. Sir Lancelot, who took an interest in the big young knight, advised him to wait and try his strength at some smaller adventure first. One day, when Sir Lancelot was away hunting, a damsel entered Arthur's hall. She carried a black shield which had painted on it a white hand holding a sword. She bowed to the king and said, My lord, I am come for a knight to undertake the adventure of the black shield. And what is that adventure, fair damsel? asked the king. That I may not tell you, answered the damsel, except that it will cause much fighting and bloodshed to the knight who chooses it. Some of the knights were eager to go, and Sir Kay pressed forward to finger the shield. Do not touch it, good Sir Kay, 
said the maiden, for this adventure is not for you. I am to choose the night. She passed up and down the hall, looking into the face of each one. When she'd seen them all, she came back to Sir Brune and said, The young knight with the ugly coat, will you take this shield? Gladly, if my king allows, said the knight. Then Arthur gave his permission, and Sir Brune followed the damsel out of the hall. Her horse was black and wore white trappings. Sir Brune's horse was as brown as an autumn leaf. The two mounted and rode away. Sir Brune began to talk to the damsel, whose name was Eleanor. At first she was agreeable, but after they had ridden many miles she became scornful and told him she was sorry she had chosen him. Sir Brune felt sad because he had begun to love the damsel. He was afraid she did not like him because his coat was poor. He did not speak to her any more, but rode on sorrowfully beside her. After a long time they came to a castle enclosed by high walls. The gate stood open, and the damsel Eleanor pointed to it and said, sighing, Since you have not left me as I'd hoped you would, go in there. You will find your first adventure. I may not tell you what it is. So Brune galloped inside the gate. There he saw a hundred knights on horseback, armed and waiting for him. He had to think and act quickly. So he decided to rush in between the knights and put his back against the castle wall. Then he could fight with his back protected. He did this, though not without receiving some spear wounds. Then he began to fight. The lady of the castle, whom the knights were keeping prisoner, watched the fight out of the window and grieved for the brave young man who had so many against him. She began to speak to him in a low voice. Young knight, if you can only get to the left side of the castle wall, there's a secret door through which you can escape. If you look, you will see that one portion of the wall is made of black stones. Strike the stones with the hilt of your sword, and a door will open through which you can ride out. The other knights did not hear what the lady said, for they were further away from her than Sir Brune was. Even he could hardly catch her words. He took a quick glance to the left and saw that there was indeed a portion of the wall marked with black stones. Then he began to work his way carefully towards the secret gate. He was obliged to move slowly for fear the knights would guess what he was doing. Moreover, it was becoming very hard to fight because of his many wounds. However, he at last came near the door. Then he backed his own brown horse up against it, struck the black stones with the handle of his sword, and the door opened. The knights shouted with rage, but they were unable to reach him in time. Sir Brune escaped, leaving behind him twelve men dead. He was very weak, and he made his way painfully to the side of the wall where the maiden Eleanor waited for him. She ran to meet him, and led him gently to a brook in a forest nearby. There she took off his armour and bathed his wounds, anointing them with a precious salve she carried. Sir Brune thought that she was sorry because she had been scornful of him and began to talk to her. But she said, Do not talk to me. If you want to please me, go back to Arthur's court. Sir Brune did not know why she spoke so, but he was too tired to think. So he lay down on the grass by the brook and went to sleep. Meantime, at Arthur's court, Sir Lancelot had returned from his hunting expedition and was told how Sir Brune had gone out with the damsel on the adventure of the shield. Oh, cried Sir Lancelot, what have you done? He will surely be killed. Merlin has told me what this adventure of the shield is. Many and many a knight has taken it up, and each has been killed. A knight who vows to follow this adventure has to meet dangers of all sorts. 
This young, untried Sir Brune will certainly be killed. He called for his horse and arms and said to the king, My lord, I will ride after this poor young man and give him what help I can. Perhaps I shall be too late, but if not, I shall ask him to give me this adventure of the sword. Then Sir Lancelot mounted his horse and rode after Sir Brune. When he came near the brook where Sir Brune and the damsel had rested, he heard the sound of great combat. Spurring forward, he saw Sir Brune fighting single-handed against six knights. Sir Lancelot rushed to the rescue and quickly overthrew the enemy. He found that they belonged to the company of the hundred knights whom Sir Brune had attacked. He ordered them, first of all, to free the lady of the castle, and then to go to Arthur's court and surrender themselves to the mercy of the king. Poor Sir Brune was almost dead. But Sir Lancelot revived him, and in a feeble voice, he thanked Sir Lancelot for his help. But the damsel begged, Take him back to the court of your king. I do not want him to follow this quest any longer. This is surely ungrateful of you, said Sir Lancelot. He has fought bravely and well. The maiden scorns me, though I love her, bitterly said Sir Brune. Then the damsel Eleanor cried out, I will tell the truth. I love you, and I am afraid you will be killed. Therefore I wish you to return to Camelot. Sir Brune was very glad, and he said, I have pledged my word, I must follow this quest. When I have succeeded, we shall go together back to Arthur's court. Give this adventure to me, said Sir Lancelot, and go back now with the damsel. But Sir Brune refused. Then Sir Lancelot said that they must undertake the adventure together, and Sir Brune consenting, they rode slowly forward. Soon they came to an abbey where they rested for some days until Sir Brune was well. Then they travelled as the damsel gave directions. She always knew what they had to do. At times they passed through woods full of beasts, some of which attacked them. Again they passed over enchanted meadows where wicked magicians tried to cast spells over them. They also fought with many knights. However, they escaped all dangers, although it is certain that Sir Brune would never have succeeded without the help of Sir Lancelot. At length, the damsel Eleanor told them that they were nearing the last adventure. She pointed to a castle on a hill, a square structure built of black stones with a turret on top. The damsel told them that at the gate of the castle were two huge dragons. These they must slay. Who is this castle? asked Sir Brune. It belongs now to the wicked Lord Brian of the Isles, answered the damsel. At this, Sir Brune gave such a loud shout that the dragons on top of the hill heard him and roared in reply. Ah, cried he, that is the name of my enemy who killed my dear father. At last I shall slay him. He rode off so quickly that Sir Lancelot had much trouble to keep up with them. It seemed scarcely five minutes before they came to the dragons, terrible creatures, all of green with eyes and tongues of flame, and their wings were as large as the sails of a ship. Sir Brune had never before seen a dragon, but he was not afraid. He fought very bravely, and even when the teeth of the dragons crunched on his helmet, he did not lose courage. After a fierce fight of half an hour, the two knights had killed the dragons. They had hoped to rest, but at that moment the castle gate opened and a porter appeared. Enter and fight, he said. Both spurred forward, but the porter said, Only one may enter. Let me go, said Sir Brune to Sir Lancelot. Remember, I am to avenge my father's death. It may be that Lord Brian of the Isles is waiting just inside the gate. Sir Lancelot consented, and the porter led in Sir Brune 
and locked the gate. Inside were two great knights, the brothers of Lord Brian of the Isles. They were almost as large as Sir Brune. Together they set upon him. He was already tired from his fight with the dragons, but his desire to avenge his father strengthened his arm. One brother was soon overthrown. When the other saw that, he yielded. Then Sir Brune sent them both to Sir Lancelot outside the gate. While Sir Brune was looking about him, a third knight appeared at the end of the courtyard. He was quite as large as Sir Brune, and as he came spurring up, the noise of his horse's hoofs was deafening. Sir Brune recognized him as Sir Planoris, the cousin of Lord Brian. Ah, cried he, where is that wretch, Lord Brian? I am to fight with all his family before I meet with him? Sir Planoris wasted no words. He rushed upon Sir Brune and struck him with his long spear. The blow broke Sir Brune's helmet, and he had much trouble to guard his head with his shield. He fought courageously, but he became weaker and weaker. Then Sir Planoris stopped fighting. I know you will never yield, he said. You're the bravest knight I have yet seen. In truth, I loved your good father, and grieved because my cousin slew him. I have no love for my cousin, Lord Brian of the Isles, but I am vowed to fight for him as long as he lives, or until I am overcome. Sir Brune was about to answer, but he fell back in a swoon. Sir Planoris lifted him gently in his arms and bore him into the castle. He carried him up the winding stairs to the turret room and gently laid him on a bed. Then he went back to the courtyard. Meantime, Sir Lancelot, hearing the porter's shout that Sir Brune was killed, beat on the gate, but nobody would let him in. Then with great difficulty he climbed the castle wall and leapt down. Sir Planoris was just about to care for the horse of Sir Brune. Give me back my friend, cried Sir Lancelot fiercely. Where is my friend? Then he began to fight with Sir Planoris. Sir Planoris was so much larger than Sir Lancelot that he thought he could easily overcome him. As the fight went on, however, he found himself all but defeated. Yield now to me, said Sir Lancelot. I am Sir Lancelot of the lake. Then Sir Planoris said, Ah, my good lord, I know of your fame. If we go on fighting, you will certainly kill me. Yet, I do not want to yield, so I ask you to treat me as I have treated Sir Brune. When Sir Lancelot heard how Sir Planoris had spared Sir Brune, he said, You are a gentle knight. I am sorry you are vowed to the service of Lord Brian of the Isles. He shall surely die. Sir Planoris answered, When he is dead, I will come to Arthur's court as one of his followers. All this time, Sir Brune was lying in a swoon on the bed in the turret room but at last he came to himself and looked about him. He saw near him his sword and shield, so he lifted them up beside him. As he lay still, trying to recover his strength, he heard stealthy footsteps coming up the turret stairs. They came nearer and nearer. Suddenly, in rushed Lord Brian of the Isles. He knew that Sir Brune was there, alone and wounded, and intended to kill him as he lay defenseless. Sir Brune understood this, and he cried, Ah, wretch! You were ever a coward. You come to kill me as I lie wounded here, just as you killed my poor father while he slept. But the sight of you makes me forget my wounds. At these words, and at the fierce rage which shone in Sir Brune's eyes, Lord Brian, who was indeed a coward, tried to retreat. But Sir Brune sprang to the doorway. You shall never go down by these stairs, villain, he said, for I will kill you. Lord Brian rushed to the window and sprang out upon the battlements. Sir Brune followed him though with difficulty. The two began to fight, and Sir Brune soon saw that his enemy was trying to push him 
close to the edge of the battlements, that he might fall down into the courtyard below. Sir Brune at this put himself behind Lord Brian, determined to cast him off instead. Slowly he pushed him until Lord Brian was but a step from the edge. Then Sir Brune lifted his shield and struck his enemy with it. The wicked lord lost his footing and was dashed to pieces at the feet of Sir Lancelot and Sir Panoris in the courtyard below. They ordered the soldiers to bury him, and while Sir Lancelot went to care for Sir Brune, Sir Planoris went down the hill to find the damsel Eleanor. She came back with tears of joy to Sir Brune. When Sir Brune was well enough to travel, he visited all the castles of Lord Brian in search of his lost mother. He was very much afraid that she was dead, but at last he found her alive in the very castle which had belonged to his father. There was great joy at their meeting. He took her to Arthur's court, whither Sir Lancelot had already conducted the damsel Eleanor. A few days afterward, Sir Brune and the damsel were married amid great festivities. Good night.